Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. of Limited is proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line all the way from Pittsburgh is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, I was really looking forward to when we recorded this episode saying live from Pittsburgh. Oh, uh, Yeah. Alas, that didn't that didn't happen because of the coronavirus. Yeah, just the coronavirus ruining so many things, least of which I think is our our reunion that we were going to have in Pittsburgh this weekend. Yeah. So please stay safe out there, folks, and practice good social distancing. Yeah. So are you yours on full lockdown as well? Full lockdown. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, my life is not much different. And I don't know what that says about the status <laughs> of my regular life. But I've been I've been preparing for social distancing for a long time. Yeah, I will say like, I feel pretty fortunate that I've set my life up to be able to work from home currently with the streaming and podcasting and all that stuff. Um, but I definitely recognize at night I get a little little antsy. I'm like, I, I kind of wish I could go do something. Being in the house all day isn't great for me. Right. And I do think it's really hard on people who freelance. There are a lot of musicians that are out of work. Like a lot of people I know or friends with from grad school are really having a tough time as a result of all of this. I mean, I'm. it's so funny like that this is the thing that feels kind of stable right now for me. But I was thinking like, what if I was still bartending or what if I was in a play right now? Like, both of those things would be completely shut down and I'd be out of luck. It's a really yeah. scary time. So yeah, definitely stay safe, stay sane, do what you can to to keep yourself active while you're on lockdown. And if you do need help, reach out to people. I've been trying hard to connect with people that I know might be in that boat just to check on them. And it's it's hard to pick up the phone, I think, after you haven't talked to someone for a year or two years, but just make the call. It's been really good reconnecting with people. Yeah, the the free time in the evenings has definitely uh, lended itself towards me reconnecting with a lot of people like being like, hey, do you want to have a, a Skype date or whatever tonight? And most people seem pretty amenable to that. Yeah. All right. So this week, we're going to be sort of wrapping things up for Theros Beyond Death with our patented 50 takes in 50 minutes episode where we're going to run down a bunch of our thoughts on the format as it's concluding. But before we get into that, we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping. First things first, let's talk about the Lords of Limited Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to get back to the show if you so choose. And I got to say, in this time of social distancing, the Lords of Limited Discord, which is what you get access to no matter what tier of the Patreon you choose to be a part of. The Discord is an amazing place to feel like you're still connected with a lot of people. And to that, we added something last week called co-op drafts, where folks can start a draft and share their screen, and then other folks can join in on a voice channel and pipe in, or not not even pipe in. You can just go and join, mute yourself, and just hear the conversation going on. That's been really successful. And we're going to try this week, Ben and I are going to start 
hosting an FNM in the Lords of Limited Discord, where we're going to, we sort of tried this this week a few times, and it seems to work out pretty well. So the way this is going to work is we are going to actually have pods of eight fire. So we'll have people draft on like a third party website um, in an eight person pod, and then you import that deck list that you draft into arena barring you know if you have have to craft any wild cards or whatever for the the rares you draft but other than that you just import the deck play it and then now you can do the 40 card deck direct challenges so you can challenge someone to play and so you can sort of recreate an eight person fnm pod so we're going to try firing a bunch of those this friday and hopefully that just sort of becomes a weekly thing for us ben yeah it would be awesome and i think you know you and i are going to be playing these pods we're going to have each of our moderators uh, from the lords of limited discord kind of monitoring a pod we'll see how much interest there is i think it sounds really sweet i'm looking forward to it i had a blast this past week when we did it we drafted some theros it was a great time just you know, drafting with people you knew, talking on Skype afterwards or Discord, hanging out while you were playing your games was was tons of fun and hoping we can get a lot of the Discord interested in Lords of Limited FNM. Yeah, so definitely looking forward to that and looking forward to welcoming our new patrons this week into the fold. So this week we're welcoming Sky, Luca, Yuki, Grown Local, Jeremiah, Alex, Mike, George, Alexandra, Robert, Brian and Clinton. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah. Cannot say thank you enough. It's really uncertain financial times for a lot of people. So the fact that people are choosing to support the podcast right now is incredible. And you know, if you feel like you need to take care of yourself financially, we understand absolutely. If you need to change your support uh, on the Patreon, please do what you need to do to take care of you and yours. Second that 100%. We also have another incentive for you this week. So while everyone's cooped up at home, we want to do a little scratching of your back if you scratch ours. So we would like to challenge everyone that listens to the podcast, whether you're a patron or not, to leave us a review on iTunes. So go to iTunes, find the podcast, leave us a review, give your honest opinion. Doesn't have to be five stars. We hope that you enjoy the podcast if you're taking the time to do this and you're going to leave us a positive review. But we definitely want honest feedback about the podcast. And, you know, we figure most folks, uh, while they're cooped up at home, will have time to do this. They might normally not take the time to do this. So as part of that, to incentivize everyone to go over to iTunes and do this, if you leave us a review and leave your name, we will sh- we will put all the names into a drawing to win either 100 ticks on MTGO or 20,000 gems, which is $100 on Arena. So your choice of platform if you are the winner, and you can use that to help finance your binging of MTGO or MTGA while you are cooped up at home thanks to the coronavirus. And if you don't listen to the podcast on iTunes, please take the time to leave us a review on your podcast listening platform of choice. And then head on over to iTunes anyway, because I think that's the major one. And we're really trying to drive reviews over there. So great way that you can help out the podcast and help yourself out while you're cooped up at home due to the coronavirus. And just to clarify, only the iTunes reviews will be entered in. We, it'll be too tough for us to scour all the podcast platforms for reviews that happen this week. Absolutely. All right. I think that's a really sweet incentive. We're excited to be throwing out that this week and the FNM drafts this coming week. And for now... Let's dive right into our 50 Theros Beyond Death takes in 50 minutes. Ben, do you want to take us off with point number one? This is the closest a format has felt to reality with drafting with the bots on Arena. I Early on in the format, I was really down on the format on MTGO, I think incorrectly so, and I switched over to Arena, and Arena just felt like such a breath of fresh air. And I have never, I have never been complimentary of Arena or the bots, and it was, it was fun. <laughs> It was great. And I think, you know, on Arena, black is open, which is the best color for most of the drafts. And you're really supposed to bias your picks, assuming that you're going to be able to draft black and should draft black on Arena if you can, because it is the best color. Yeah, I will say 
I think even the first bot iteration of this format felt pretty close and I think they've refined it pretty well. So, and I assume this is the final form that we will see going forward when they bring back Theros Beyond Death once Ikoria comes out, if that comes back as the rank draft or whatever, that I think this is going to be the iteration that we'll see. And it's pretty close to reality. And I even found myself, you know, after we were doing our bot episode, I was like, you know, I still think I'm going to stick on Arena. I was even playing best of three. I don't think that's ever happened in the history of the podcast. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, it's odd. It's not real in the sense that like it's so easy to draft black because it still is not easy to draft black on Magic Online. Right. And you're wondering if you're going to get cut. But it's real in the sense that you get to draft a deck that is powerful and functional and you get to play really good games of Theros. Mm-hmm. And and that is the the selling point. I think the biggest selling point is that the gameplay of this format is really, really fun. Number two, black is the best color by a lot. So I think this was sort of our initial issues with the format was that it felt like there was this game of chicken early on in the format of like, are you supposed to, you know, six year guns and draft black? We felt that the format could support up to like basically four black drafters at a table. So it was sort of hard to know if you were supposed to stick to the color or not. I think that led to some feel bads for us early in the format. Yeah. And I think over the course of the format, you really got a feel for whether or not you could stick to black. And I think really the line is kind of in the Myers grasp final death area for where you really want to fight for black. And both of those cards, if you end up getting cut out of black, are pretty splashable. Final death more so than Myers grasp. But I think you could consider splashing Myers grasp if you got some enchantment synergy going on, maybe in white or things like that. Yeah, once we discovered, I think the flexibility of the multicolor deck, taking Myers grasps or final deaths early felt less bad because I knew that I could splash them if I got pushed off of that deck. But even think about, you know, Black has really good commons. Black has really strong uncommons. You've got Farika Spawn, Elspeth's Nightmare, Grey Merchant, Drag to the Underworld, Inevitable End, Mire Triton. Like the list is so long of the cards worth first picking that are black that I think that's what leads people to draft black more often than not. Right. Well, and the best commons, black. Mm-hmm. Best uncommons, black. And, and we're talking overall and then like significantly better also, not just the best and it's close. Exactly. Number three, white is the second best color in the format, followed by after white, I think red is kind of equal to blue. And then both of those are better than green. And there's not huge gaps there. Green's definitely draftable. I, I've been hyperbolically on stream saying that green is terrible and you're getting angry at me. Green's perfectly draftable. It does feel a little less. I don't know what the word is. I'll, I'll tell you what the problem is. What? Greens, commons and uncommons, there's so many junkers, way more than the other colors. Like the top of green isn't bad, like Warbriar Blessing, Chimera, Voracious Typhon. Those are all good cards, but it drops off so deeply after that. And if you look at the uncommons, there's so many junkers like Zetessen Petitioner, Clothis's design. Like there's just so many things where you're like, this is not only is this not good, this is basically unplayable. Right. I think and I think the other thing I found the word I was looking for. I think the other thing is that green is less dynamic than the other colors. It's very one dimensional in its plan, which is like play some dudes and either like put wings of hubris on them or grind with them via escape. Or like it's very much like dudes, combat, hope my stuff's bigger than yours, like play some removal. And sometimes that works and you do smash, like especially in red green or something like that. But it's not very flexible in what it wants to do. Right. Whereas if you think about, you know, white, why it's the second best color, almost all I would say probably all 19 of white's commons are playable. Like maybe Rumbling Sentry is like the worst of the bunch. But even that has a home sometimes. That's got great stats, baby. Yeah, I know. That's that's scry one. Don't underrate it. Well, and three six is just like such a good body. It blocks mm-hmm. Farika spawn. It blocks 
Typhons without killing them. Blocks the Chimera even after it's escaped. Yeah. Number four, escape is a fantastic mechanic. I think this is a slam dunk limited mechanic, and it really defined the format's gameplay and deck building. Uh, I I really feel embarrassed. And I I mean, I knew it when I was saying it because I was like, this can't be the case. But I was really skeptical of escape during like my set review and crash course. I was like, how, how much, how many cards end up in the graveyard? How often are you going to be able to pump mana into these cards? And turned out a lot and many times. Like I, I really think this felt similar to me to how we were a little skeptical of city's blessing in rivals of Ixalan. Like, well, how, how often are you going to get to 10 permanents? And it turned out pretty often. And it was a, a mechanic you were able to turn on. And I think just moving forward, like, don't be skeptical of the set's main mechanic is probably a good takeaway for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember when I thought it was flashback, like I just had it mentally shortcutted as flashback before we really got into the crash course. And then once I realized you could do it multiple times, I was like, Oh dear, that's busted. Yeah. And it turned out it was busted. (laughs) Yeah. Number five, escape wants you to think about cards going to the graveyard as percentages of being worth a card. So for example, if you've got an escape three card, getting three cards in your graveyard should generally be worth a card of value. So this is where the idea that Venomous Hierophant is three and a black, three, three death touch draw a card, because when it ETBs, you mill three. And then if you've got something like a freak of spawn in your deck, then you get those three cards in your graveyard that gives you a second chance at casting Farika spawn which is really powerful so tracking the graveyard and all of that getting cards to the graveyard and and removal spells that put a card in your graveyard and not in your opponents really all bumped up just a notch yeah we'll, we'll, we'll be looking at that a little bit down the road and also looking at like why exile matters so much in this format Number six, packs tend to really dry up on power level by around pick five or six. So it's tough to pivot late and or find your lane than if you're going for a two color deck. Yeah, I think this is something that has really hit me early on. And when I was struggling in the format, I just felt like I was getting bad drafts. And then the more drafts I did, like once I got past draft 15 or draft 20, that's just the way a lot of drafts go. And I think you need to roll with it, understand it. And know what that means for you when you're drafting, which is that you need to be, you know, either committing hard to a lane or picking cards that leave you out if the packs are weak in pack one, like Traveler's Amulet, Thrill of Possibility, Thirst for Meaning, stuff that's going to set you up to be flexible for the beginning of packs two and three when there are powerful cards and you're going to get a chance to see them. Because what you don't want, you never want to end up in a spot where you're having to pass a very powerful rare in this format. You want to maximize the best cards you see. I think one of the biggest pitfalls in this format is drafting it like it's similar to other formats we've seen recently, where I just think that's going to be a trap a lot of the time. When you end up knowing that you're two colors, like you've got four red cards, four black cards at the end of pack one, if you've like sort of set yourself up for that lane, you got to be dang sure that that color pair is open and that you have powerful reasons to be in that color pair. Yes, absolutely. And I think if you end up in a spot where you have like, two red cards, two white cards, a green card, a blue card, a black card. And normally you'd feel okay about that. That really doesn't feel great in this format unless you're planning to draft the five color deck. Yep. Number seven, Prince format confirmed. So let me let me give you a list of rares here. Dream Trawler, QR Best the Sea God, Ashiach, Archon of Sun's Grace, Shadow Spear, all completely busted and accompanied by a host of about like 20 to 30 other rares that are just way better 
than all of the rest of the cards in the format. Yeah, and I think realizing this is another key to the format. Realizing that these cards are worth hanging on for dear life for because they're so much more powerful than anything else you can have. Even more powerful oftentimes if like you feel like, well, I've got an Archon of Sun's Grace, but it looks like blue-green is open. Well, you better find a way to jam that Archon of Sun's Grace into your blue-green deck. Yeah, I think, and that means making sacrifices in your mana base, picking Traveler's Amulets aggressively, and picking Filtering aggressively. Along those same lines, number eight, there are large gaps in power level between the various tiers of cards, and the cards that do matter end up mattering way more than the cards that don't. So feel like the key to drafting this format ultimately turned out to be trying to maximize those cards that did matter and seeing them as often as possible, combined with very good grindy gameplay where a lot of decisions mattered when the game wasn't ended by one of the aforementioned bomb rares. So I, I think there's something really important here to note about what we mean by one, the tiers of cards, which I think you alluded to uh, last week or, or two weeks ago when we talked about commons in context, like thinking about the, the tiers of power level of cards is really important. So having that clear pick order in your mind, I think is worth it. But then also sort of knowing how to maximize those cards. And that doesn't necessarily mean drafting cards of that color, but could mean drafting cards like Thrill of Possibility, Thirst for Meaning, Traveler's Amulet, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Number nine, Mirror Shield is an underrated card in the format. This card's really playable if you have a few key creatures to protect. So Mirror Shield is a two-mana artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus O plus two and has hexproof. And whenever a creature with death touch blocks or becomes blocked by this creature, destroy that creature and equip two. So really you're interested in Mirror Shield just for the plus O plus two and hexproof and kind of at odds in that you want this in your deck when you don't even necessarily have a high creature count. If you're a deck that you know has eight creatures, but all eight of those creatures are really important, you want a mirror shield in your deck because what this does, it's great in certain matchups where your opponent has a lot of removal. Maybe they're relying on some final deaths, some dreadful apathies to exile your stuff. Mirror shield just shuts down a large portion of your opponent's deck at times. I have not played with this card, but I'm hoping that maybe I have the chance to in, in the coming weeks before this format rotates out. You've sort of sold me here with point number nine. Yeah, and it also works very well if you have stuff like Staggering Insight to suit up your creatures with. Like if you're trying to Voltron up a creature, Mirror Shield can definitely have a home in your deck there as well. Nice. Number 10, Red White Heroic is the best aggro deck in the format, and Wrap in Flames is a key card in that archetype. I remember, so there, I have two feelings about this card. So when we had our limited testing meeting right before GP New Jersey, I hadn't drafted this deck yet. And so I just sort of took everyone's word for, okay, Wrap in Flames is the key to this heroic deck. I was like, that sounds crazy to me, but sure, I'm going to trust everybody. And then I had the chance after that, the following week when I got home to draft, of drafting the deck and realized it was the truth and realized that like af at a certain point, basically by turn five rapid flames is the only card you want to draw because it's just going to end the game for you basically and i also remember watching Corticall's stream and him talking about people saying like oh you're having success with red white that's weird i haven't and alex going how many rapid flames are you running and people going oh i guess none and him going there's your problem uh rapid flames is definitely the key to this archetype right and i think of all of the decks in the format this is the one that's least dependent on rares like yes. white red comes together it's commons it's uncommons and it it goes toe to toe with the best decks in the format and i think closes the game out before a lot of the bomb rares can come down which is one of the reasons it's so good agree number 11 top five commons overall in order number one myers grasp number two dreadful apathy over final death at number three Number four, Aroas's Blessing, and number five, Omen of the Sea. Now, can you talk real quick? I think probably no one's going to have any issues with one through four here. 
But can you talk about why Omen of the Sea is here over, say, something like Warbriar Blessing? Yeah, Omen of the Sea is just always great. Warbriar's Blessing is predicated on you having a bunch of creatures in play, your creatures being bigger than your opponents. It's fine, but it's it's nowhere near the power level of Omen of the Sea, in my opinion, as far as Omen of the Sea's ability to dig, the synergy that exists with Omen of the Sea in the format as far as, I mean, I guess they both leave an enchantment on the battlefield, but Omen doesn't have any requirements. This just says, I'm going to get you four cards deeper towards the best cards in your deck, and that is so, so, so powerful in this format. Number 12, top five non-gold uncommons in order. Farika Spawn, top of the heap, number one, bringing up a close but clear second, Elspeth's Nightmare, Entrancing Liar, number three, Shimmerwing Chimera, number four, and Grey Merchant of Asphodel, number five. Black card, black card, black card. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of others that could probably be pretty close on this list. I think a lot of the black uncommons that we listed earlier probably make it in the top 10. So probably like six of the top 10 are black. And I I think for me, Entrancing Liar and Chimera are quite close. I'm, I'm probably on Chimera, number three, and Liar, number four, but really, really close there. Number 13, Thrill of Possibility is a very good card in the format and the second best red common. Takes, 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 takes. I mean, I think it's true. Yeah. It's it's so good. And if you told me at the start of the format, I would have told you you are crazy. So here's some things Thrill of Possibility does. It fuels the graveyard for escape. It draws you 2.6 cards on average. Because of those two cards you're discarding, think about each of those as 0.3 of a card. It makes it so you see your bombs more often and don't flood out. And it enables you to play a multicolor deck with a little bit greedier splashes than normal because you can pitch cards that you can't cast or it can dig you towards sources that you need for those powerful cards that you've drawn. It just does it all. So here's the one sort of asterisk that I want to put here is that this is sort of predicated on what you are pairing red with because red on the non-rare level doesn't have good things to escape. Like if you've got Phoenix or Ox of Agonis, then great. But otherwise, you're counting your escape towards your Rage Hound, basically, which isn't really where you want to be. But red pairing with every other color, even with blue, if you're fueling like your Sleep of the Deads for your tempo blue-red deck, that's still going to be good. Right. But you do have to have either the escape cards or the rares in your deck. It's it's not intrinsically the second best red common. You have to have the synergies going along with it to make it that. Correct. Number 14, Traveler's Amulet is the best way to fix for the multicolor splash bombs deck in the format. And if you had told me that at the start of the format, I would have said you were crazy. But Traveler's Amulet is the best it's ever been. I think that's partially because of what we've been talking about, about how you think about cards going to the graveyard, counting towards escape. So Traveler's Amulet being a third or a fourth of an escape card down the road is really worth it, even if you're just in a two-color deck. But beyond that, the fact that you know the first one or two basically replace lands for you makes it really, really good because it doesn't impact the number of spells you get to play. It just does it all. Yep. And I think if you're thinking about other fixing in order of goodness, next is Alter the Pantheon followed by Unknown Shores as far as colorless options. And if you're taking a look at green options, you want to value Elysian Caryatid slightly higher than Omen, but Omen has gone up for me recently in green. Yeah, it, it really just depends. I think if you're looking at the double splash life, I think Caryatid probably gets you there. But Caryatid so fragile that it feels bad to rely on it because your opponent can really disrupt it. So yeah, it's sort of a toss up there depending on, on where you're at. Very situational for both those cards. Number 15, White really wants to be a heavy white deck and does not play well with others in the same box. <laughs> white wants to be white. So All of the white cards are very self-synergistic, and it looks so obvious when you look at the white commons right now that white's going to be great 
aggressive aggro deck. Like all of the cards want to do that thing with very little exception. And I think white does not play a support role very well. So if you're white, you really want it to be your primary color. Think about cards like Daybreak Chimera, Pious Wayfarer, Transcendent Envoy, Sentinel's Eyes, Hero of the Pride, Omen of the Sun. They all get better when they're around each other. Right. I mean, the the mana requirements for Daybreak Chimera, that seems sort of obvious. You're like, well, I would definitely want to be a heavy white deck. But the same can be said about those cheap cards you mentioned, like Wayfarer, Envoy, Hero of the Pride. Because if you're playing a bunch of white one and two drops, guess what your main color has to be? It has to be white. White really, it's tough for it to be a support role other than maybe you've got just a bunch of white removal like Apathies or Banishing Lights or whatever. Well, and just take Transcendent Envoy as a card. One white, one two, enchantment creature, flyer. And essentially, the aura discount's fine, whatever. Mm -hmm. That card is bad, but all of a sudden, if you've got a Pious Wayfarer and you've got a Hero of the Pride that can pump it, you're going to get some triggers, it wears something like Commanding Presence really well. And lets you curve into Commanding Presence. Right. All of a sudden, it's a card you want in your deck. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of synergy pieces. I think Envoy is probably the the most synergistic card or the card that I most look for, like how many boxes of those that you just mentioned can I check? And if I can check a bunch of them, then I'm happy to put it in my deck. Right. Number 16, Wings of Hubris is the Lords of Limited Sealed tech gp new jersey was great ben i think that's partially because you and i both went 4-0 in a last chance trial and then 8-1 or i guess 6-1 with our two buys the first day which was super sweet um i think much sweeter for you with the pile you had to scrape together but both of us ended up maining wings of hubris and i think both of us felt like that was a really strong move yeah it was great and i had a blast traveling to gp new jersey meeting up with everybody practicing for it doing the limited testing meeting the whole deal and i'm sure that's rose colored glasses because we did well but i think i would have i have enjoyed gps even when we've scrubbed out yeah i mean it's not quite as good of a feeling but definitely when the world gets back to normal Hope to travel to some more GPs with you all and compete. Agree. Number 17, Pious Wayfarer is the Merfolk Secret Keeper of Theros Beyond Death on Arena. Boom. <laughs> so this is another pretty hot take here. And I think this is on here not because, you know, Pious Wayfarer doesn't lead to obnoxious decks like Merfolk Secret Keeper did. But I think it is a powerful common that wheels almost always, so you know you can catch them all, that makes every card or nearly every card in that color better. So once you have a bunch of Pious Wayfarers, you have a very clear game plan and Pious Wayfarers making all of those cards better, like thinking about the things we mentioned, like Envoy, Sentinel's Eyes, Omen of the Sun, it makes better, etc. Yeah. Number 18. And I think this is one of the reasons that we don't like the format very much. There are not really any build arounds in the set. Maybe Furious Rise, which is fine, but it isn't really good enough to try and build around. You just put it in your deck when you're red-green or or red-black sometimes and have the goods for it. Yeah, this is one of my least favorite things about this format. The rares a lot of times end up being the build-arounds, but not in the sense of like they incentivize you to draft this certain deck. They're build-arounds in that you're trying to find the rare, maximize the rare, recur it as often as possible with things like Omen of the Dead. And it's just not a super interesting way to build around because you build around them all almost the same way. Right. It's just like I want to draw into them. I want to find them. I want to have the ways to survive the game long enough so that I can play them and maximize them. But I think for as as busted as the rares are, it took me personally way too long in the format to realize that this was the game that you're supposed to run. Yeah. 
I agree. I think I think we were behind the curve this format. Number 19. This format is good on Arena specifically because of these lack of build arounds and collectimals. It's really hard for the bots to drastically undervalue cards when most of the cards in the format just operate on raw power. And going along with that, there is synergy in the format, but a lot of the synergy is synergy that exists between a really powerful card, a rare, a really powerful uncommon, and maybe two to three other cards that are at the common level. And for the synergy to work, you have to get a copy of the powerful card. And sometimes that just doesn't happen in your drafts. Like You don't see an Elspeth Conquers Death, or you don't see a Shimmerwing Chimera. And then it's really hard to compete with people that do have those kinds of synergies going on. Yeah. Number 20, some games will go to natural decking, more so than I think in any other format we've seen in the life of the podcast. And if the game is going to go long, make sure you pay attention to how many cards are in both yours and your opponent's deck. Yeah, I think if you find yourself in this boat, Sweet Oblivion can be a great sideboard card in these games, or if you combine it with Thassa's Oracle, can be a win condition and a plan for your deck all on its own. And I think sometimes it's even correct to play more than 40 cards. Usually this is in black-green where you've got a lot of self-mill, you've got a very flat power level, and I think that's the key there, right? You don't want to play more than 40 cards if you've got something like, you know, Pelucranos. Mm -hmm. You just have to find Pelucranos as often as possible. This would be like... everything in your deck is sort of operating at the same level. So this is going to happen few and far between. Yeah, but is a tool that I think worth noting. And I think also the reason we're saying make sure you're aware of your opponent's deck, because the difference in some games of casting Thirst for Meaning or Thrill of Possibility can be the difference of you being ahead in the decking race versus your opponent. So there are times where casting those cards is a liability. But on the flip side of that, I would also be like, you know, if your opponent has 12 cards left in their library... I don't think you want to be on the, okay, well, the board is stalled now and we're both top decking. Maybe I just hope to deck them plan. Like that's 12 cards is a lot of cards in a library, folks. I think a lot of people get excited about this, like, well, it's just going to go to natural decking, but 12 turns is a lot of turns. Right. I specifically remember a game where I had like, I don't know, nine cards left in my library. And if I cast a thirst for meaning, I was going to be behind, quote unquote, in the decking race. But it was still right to do it because it let me draw three cards and just slam the door on my opponent and just win by killing them. So don't don't fall in love with that. Number 21, Flummox Cyclops has reach. Number 22, let's talk about Revoke Existence versus Return to Nature and just sort of, you know, these disenchant effects in general in a format that is so heavily based on enchantments. Yeah, I think I'm lower on both of these cards than the rest of the world and probably too low. Like I've been so hipster about it that I'm actually probably too low on them now. (laughs) I think, you know, if you think about it, because white usually wants to be aggressive, all the cards have to matter. So Revoke as a main deck card in white is a liability sometimes. And green is more of a grindy color. So the first copy of return will make your deck in a green deck more than revoke will in your white deck. But probably one of these effects in the main deck is really where you want to be in the format in general. And I I think I've been resistant to that a little bit because people are trying to run two, three, and I don't really think that's where you want to be. Yeah, I mean, I came out of the gate hot, I think day zero when we were doing the arena early access streamer event. I texted you, I was like, return to nature is Doomblade. And I had this experience with the card when I was playing it in in the sealed events there, where I was just like, oh, it targets that? Oh, it targets that? That's an enchantment? Or that was an artifact? I think in my, my first sealed league, I did all three modes. I killed an artifact, killed an enchantment, and exiled an escape card from a graveyard in those uh, in those nine games. So I was really high on the card and thought that two 
maybe even three main deck was correct and then slowly walked it back and i'm now on one main deck but definitely wanting access to a bunch out of the sideboard for sure number 23 vexingal is better than thirst for meaning is better than deny the divine in the holy trinity of what could the opponent have when they're holding up three mana in a blue deck now do you mean this in terms of how you want to prioritize them or do you mean this in terms of how often you feel like this is what they have I think, no, this is pick orders. Like you want to prior, like Vex and Gull is the best of these three cards. And I think, you know, if you're playing around them, I I, honestly, I think you're probably not supposed to play around this. No. Unless you just have some bomb rare that you cannot afford to run into Deny of the Vine. Otherwise, you're just jamming because when you don't jam, you give the opponent such an advantage. Yeah, because, you know, you're seeing that even in just these three cards a third of the time they're going to have a counter spell but they could also just have a creature or a draw spell and so if you give them the free counter spell in their hand by sort of you know respecting that or whatever then you give them the opportunity to do something else for free number 24 the cycle of omens are all better than you think they are still, still. like i think we're still probably underrating them i think you and i specifically but also as a community at large yeah, I was really low on Red Omen for most of the format, and I, I have come way, way, way up on it. I don't know mm-hmm. how I was as low as I was on it for the whole format. Yeah, it's really good. I think, well, I think this the illumination of the five color deck put Omen of the Forge way up in my pick order. Right, right, because you want the early defense. Yes, I think Omen of the Dead is a really strong card. This is like the best raised dead we've ever seen. I mean, it's it's a flash enchantment. It adds to your devotion, which Black cares about. I mean, the scry, the late game scry on all of these is really valuable. The fact that the bombs that you play matter so much or that your deck is so built around just maybe a few creatures. And if your opponent is able to answer one of them, just Omen of the Dead getting it back because your opponent probably had to jump through some hoops to take care of your Archon of Sun's Grace or whatever. So now you get it back with the Omen of the Dead and they're like, oh, man, I got to do this all over again. That that card is great. Can I interest you in Omen of the Dead as the third best black common? uh, That's I think over. I don't know. That's tough. They're so it's so context dependent. This is why I get like past like. I think the top two commons, even sometimes the top one, it's so context dependent, especially in this set. Yeah, that makes sense. It um, is it is that good of a card, though. It's on par with Catablipus for sure. Agree. I also want to just note that like the omens make other cards in the set better, like Enigmatic Incarnation, which might be another thing that's like a th- that's a build around, but it's rare. So that's tough. Uh, it makes Final Flare better, Dream Shaper Shaman better. And I can't tell you enough how the late game sack to scry to is often feels like you're drawing one to two cards. Yeah, very strong. Number 25, the Lords of Limited Gold Uncommon Power Rankings. The the bottom five, Siona at the bottom, followed by Rise to Glory, Slaughter Priest, then Devourer of Memory, then Warden of the Chain. And then there is a pretty significant gap. Yeah, then you've got Eutropia the Twice Favored and Acolyte of Affliction as five and four. And then there's a gap. Yeah, big gap there. And then I think number three, Staggering Insight, number two, Hero of the Nixborn, and number one, Top of the Heap, mischievous chimera hot takes fresh hot takes get them here folks i mean i think mischievous chimera is the truth i i was a skeptic and then after drafting blue red with mischievous chimera the aggressive version of the deck and i think blue red is not it's not counterspell driven it's not like the hold up three mana driven what blue red wants to do is it wants to have one turn where you hold up mana and you do something to the the opponent and then all of a sudden your board is just like so far ahead of theirs that they can't come back 
that's how my best blue red decks have played out. It's the definition of get ahead, stay ahead. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Number 26, both Wraths, Shatter the Sky and Storm's Wrath, were underrated for most of the format until the multicolored control decks started to take form, and then we found a natural home for both of these cards. So I think we were probably way too low on them and have now come up now that we see that there's a home for them. Just thinking about Shadow of the Sky and Storm's Wrath, thinking about white and red rats when white and red want to be aggressive, I don't think it's incorrect to think about those cards as being out of place in those decks. But now that we see appropriate homes for them, I think those cards are are definitely high picks. Well, and they got punished by Escape, and Shadow of the Sky had the four power claws, but th- there is there is a home. Yeah, for sure. Number 27, Flicker of Fate and Dreadful Apathy or Sagas. It was a really cool one-two punch in the format. You can almost always get a card value out of Flicker of Fate, and sometimes it's actively busted, you know, when you're doing it something like Elspeth Conquers Death or First to Row in Games. Just a really powerful synergy. Yeah, and for folks who are coming back to this episode who maybe haven't listened to any of our other Theros Beyond Death episodes, just to talk about what Flicker of Fate plus Dreadful Apathy does. With Dreadful Apathy on a creature, you can activate the two and a white to exile the creature. And then in response, with that trigger on the stack, you can flicker Dreadful Apathy onto another one of your opponent's creatures. But that exile trigger will still be on the stack for the first creature, so that creature will be exiled. So for both of these cards in combination and with three white-white available for you, you can essentially exile one creature and then reassign the pacifism. Boom. Number 28. Pious Wayfarer is often the glue for white decks. I really feel like it was such a huge level up for me in the format when I decided that I thought Wayfarer was the second best white common. And I think that's because... I mean, it's powerful in it in and of itself. It does exactly what most white decks want to do, which is like curve out and beat down. It lends itself towards being a base white deck, which is what white wants to do. And as we talked about earlier, it makes so many other white commons better. Yeah, and I think there is a flavor of white where Pious Wayfarer is not important to the deck when you've got, you know, heroes and you've got the hoplite in your five drop slot and you really are trying to go wide and pump your team. Yeah. But I think Pious Wayfarer, can be played in those decks depending on how many enchantments you've got and is also an archetype all of its own number 29 thassa is best as a splash so thassa is three and a blue one of the gods turns on if you've got five blue devotion but notably at the end of your turn you can blink a creature and then also has three in the blue tap a creature so there's not a lot of great cards in blue to blink outside of Illyrios. So if you're blinking Illyrios, you're getting a 3-2 reflection for free every turn. But if you go towards black or green, there's Blight Breath Catablepus to machine gun things down. Ferris Band Brawler, similarly, Acolyte of Affliction to generate a lot of a value. I've had this deck several times, and I've not been able to get it to be great. One of the problems I've run into with the deck is that I just my creatures aren't big enough in the deck because a lot of those things that you're blinking are not super strong. And if your opponent plays a voracious Typhon, you're just in trouble a lot of the time. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but I do think that Thassa is best outside of a base blue deck. Yep, agree. Number 30, Metamized Prophecy second chapter has two best friends, and those are Thrill of Possibility and Thirst for Meeting. Ben, do you want to talk about this interaction? Yeah, so the second chapter is Name a Card. And what you're going to have to do after you name a card on the third chapter, if you cast the named card, then you get to draw two cards when the when the third chapter, like the turn that the third chapter is going off. So when you put the second chapter on the stack, you can cast Thrill of Possibility or Thirst for Meaning in response to that trigger going on the stack. 
and then get that card draw, have more options, and then name a card after you've cast those spells when you've seen more spells to look at. Yeah, very, very cool interaction there. Number 31, red black does not have to play out as steal and sacrifice, but it definitely can. Yeah, so Porton of Betrayal can definitely get you there. I mean, this is not a card that you're playing at the end of the game like a normal active treason would be to close the door in an aggro deck, so the scry one is good. One mana sack outlets are the most important for this deck. I mean, obviously, if you have Woe Strider, that's great because it's a zero mana sack outlet, but it's a rare. So I'm looking at Scophos War Leader and Lampad of Death's Vigil as being the glue for when you want to be running multiple Portent of Betrayals. And Scophos War Leader, I think, is less good than Lampad, but the 4-5 body on Scophos War Leader has just been so impressive in the format. But the fact that Lampad is going to come down you know, on turn two, Lampad just does so much in every black deck, but specifically in this red black sacrifice deck. Yeah. Well, speaking of number 32, Scophos War Leader, I think is one of the most underrated creatures in the set. Yeah, absolutely. We just said it. Four, five for five is a huge body. One mana sack outlet is great. The threat of menace often makes your opponent have to play defensively. It can let you push through damage to close out the game. I've beaten a dream trawler because that was their only creature on the battlefield. And I was able to give my Scophos War Leader menace when the opponent thought they were stable. It just does so, so much it survives storm's wrath you name it this card does it number 33 red's commons were super underrated at the onset of the format by us and and by the world at large i think i think everyone had red as the worst color for a few weeks i would say yeah and it is definitely not so omen of the forge final flare scophos war leader thrill of possibility wrap in flames even incendiary oracle red is really deep and i think there just wasn't an obvious home for the cards mm -hmm. and i think you know something like thrill of possibility that has been you know borderline unplayable in most formats is a very good card in this format i think it's similar to white in that once you sort of look at how the cards work in tandem with each other like how omen of the forge makes final flare better and even makes scophos war leader better how thrill of possibility works with escape how rap and flames makes the heroes better how incendiary oracle works against your opponent's escape like all of those things i think are these tiny little edges that all add up to the color being better than it looks I agree. Number 34, Hydra's Growth is nearly unplayable. I see this card included too many times. I think maybe people now are around to the idea that it's just not where you want to be, but there was a lot of times where I would have to defend not taking it on stream. I think the only times I've ever been happy running it is in like a green-white Boggles style deck where you have lots of auras and then you also have Siona and Heliod's Pilgrims to sort of mitigate the card disadvantage that those auras give you. Adding raw stats in green slowly over multiple turns is not where you want to be in this format. Yeah, quick shout out to my nephew, Teddy. We were playing on Magic Arena the other day and opponent had two Hydra's Growths on their creatures, one of which was a Shimmerwing Chimera, and then also had two Starlit Mantles when we went to tap down their creatures. Whoa. And we had Dream Trawler out and ultimately lost to double Hydra's Growth double starlit mantle shimmerwing chimera it was a rough beat that sounds uh that sounds pretty obnoxious yeah number 35 witness of tomorrows is our first medium sphinx in a while so historically five mana three four flyers you know think cloud reader sphinx think watcher in the mist have been among the top blue commons and i think really got us fired up about witness tomorrows but the truth is this card is fine 
Agree. Number 36. The higher the creature's converted mana cost, the more of a liability it is for it being an enchantment, right? If you're afraid of getting it got by revoke, repeal, return, all of those things are, I think, important to think about. Like, as you get, I think that's one of the knocks against Witness of Tomorrow, speaking of the 3-4 flyer for 5, is that it is an enchantment. I think it would be better if it weren't um, because it can get snapped off by these. So I think probably like 4 CMC is the sweet spot, and anything above that, you start to feel like this might be a problem yep number 37 graveyard hate matters in this set so first off timoret is the business top of the heap king of the hill uh next up i'd say a very close second is elspeth's nightmare uh, the fact that timoret can do the graveyard hate whenever you want like elspeth's nightmare is just a one shot but that one shot is powerful next cling to dust can do great job picking off you know that one key plukronos or uro you know a lot more, works a lot better against bombs yeah, and, and generally you can go like, all right, I'm going to nab a piece that is part of your escape fuel to then cantrip with this, and then I can fire it off to nab the actual escape card so it doesn't feel like you've gotten yourself like two for one or whatever. And then bringing up the rear here, we've got the Harpy, Return to Nature, Laying into the Lost Pride as ways to, to get stuff out of your opponent's graveyard. But all of those cards are, are worth thinking about. Number 38, Exile matters in this set. And this goes back to Escape. This goes back to Graveyard Hate Matter. But thinking about you having a card that does something on the way to the graveyard while denying a card in your opponent's graveyard is relevant. Thinking about cards like Incendiary Oracle or Agonizing Remorse, anything that's going to be like, hey, I exile this card, but I now end up with a card in my graveyard to fuel my escape while denying a piece to fuel your escape. That does matter in this format. Well, and just exiling something like Pelucranos sure. matters a big game or exiling Farika Spawn. Big, big, big game. It's why Final Death is better than Drag to the Underworld. Right, absolutely. And because as the format went on, people figured out, okay, I can build my deck around maximizing Freakus Spawn, finding it, escaping it as many times as possible. And then if you can Final Death that, boom, you're in great shape. Yep. Number 39, Sleep of the Dead has a very real place in the format. So in the blue aggressive decks, you don't often have a lot of escape options, and this can be a really strong tempo swing for you. I finally, about a week or so ago, had a chance to play the Sleep of the Dead deck, and it is as good as advertised. You want to be using it offensively, but in a pinch, you can use it defensively. Locking a creature down for a turn is really long time, especially against a blue-red deck that's trying to beat you down. Number 40, the blue Drago deck has two flavors. Uh, one side is we've been talking about this a little bit blue red which is generally a get ahead stay ahead deck where like you know you've stuck a threat and then you pass the turn and then maybe you get to counter something or bounce something and play a vexing gull and now you're just miles ahead of your opponent and you have the game all locked up and the other version is a blue black deck that's more controlling where the counter spells are better and i think the more counter spells you have the better because the more of them you have the more often you are to draw them and the more likely they are to work in tandem with the other spells other spells including the riptide turtle which is essentially blue doomblade yeah i'm a little lower on the turtle these days it has a place but I, I of the blue decks, I want to be casting cards that matter rather than trying to react. So I've had a lot of experience O2ing with blue decks with Deny the Divines, Turtles, that package. And the problem is if you don't have it all at the right time when your opponent's trying to do their stuff, there's so many powerful cards in the set that you just get punished with one slip up. It's really tough to play those decks. Either I've gotten lucky with these decks or you've gotten unlucky with the decks or or it's somewhere in the middle or, or somewhere in, in, in both of those camps. But I have had a lot of success with the like 
lots of counter spells decks. Number 41, Indomitable Will is less good than Sentinel's Eyes by quite a lot. And I, I had it the other way going into the format. I was oh, pretty yeah. hyped on Indomitable Will. Sentinel's Eyes giving Vigilance, I think that was what we missed. And just how great Escape is, I guess, honestly. Right, well, it's that, not only is Escape great, but this is why it's only Escape card at Common or Uncommon. Yes, that's a big deal. And also like being able to get a recursive enchantment is pretty valuable, like a recursive way to target your heroes or to trigger your wayfarers, whatever. Sentinel's Eyes is the business. Yeah, you don't have to tell me. I love this card. (laughs) Number 42, Relentless Pursuit is much, much narrower than you think. This is not green divination, as perhaps someone called it in a crash course. Uh, You need a high creature count and a high escape count so that every part of this card matters, right? You want to be able to draw a creature in a land consistently. If you whiff on either of those, it feels bad. And then you also want to care about the two or three cards going to your graveyard as well so that you want a lot of escape cards. If you don't have all of that, I don't think you want this in your deck. Which one of us called this the green divination, me or you? It was not me. Yeah, that's the <laughs> yikes. <laughs> that was also a significant contributing factor to my terrible win rate at the start of the format was me casting and picking Relentless Pursuit way too highly. Learn from our mistakes, folks. Number 43, Inevitable End is better than you think. I think both of us were too low on this because it looked like a Punisher type card, but it almost always reads kill this creature at the next upkeep. And even if it doesn't, you just it, it is essentially two and a black kill something power three or less, which is just a good card. It's a very good card. Yeah. High, high pick. Definitely always include very strong. Number 44, Lagana Band Storyteller has a lot of loop-de-loop friends. So this is the three and a white, three, four ETBs. You can choose an enchantment card from your graveyard and put it back on top of your library, and then you gain life equal to its CMC. So its best friend is Elspeth Conqueror's Death. So you get to loop that with the third chapter. Omen of the Dead, you can get that. So every time you're, you know, you get Lagana Band Storyteller to get back your Omen, then Storyteller dies. Well, Omen's going to bring Lagana Band Storyteller right back into your hand rinse and repeat you can use minions return with this as well it's a pretty sweet card along with that shimmerwing chimera plays very nice with both elspeth conquers death and omen of the dead as well as you know blessings starlet mantle it does so much shimmerwing chimera lords of the limited preview card was as good as we thought it was going to be as far as synergy in the format oh yeah for sure one of the top uncommons and I, you know those are sort of those aren't really build arounds but they are things to look out for synergy pieces to have the like you know two card combo three card combo sort of thing right number 45 dreadful apathy is better than banishing light in this format so there's several things going on here first of which is dreadful apathy ends up in your graveyard which matters for escape and or recurring dreadful apathy with stuff like, you know, Rise to Glory, things along those lines. The Flicker of Fate trick exists with Dreadful Apathy, where it does not with Banishing Light. It works, you know, around enchantment removal because you can exile in response to them trying to blow up your Dreadful Apathy or just exile before they ever have a chance to target it with something like Return to Nature. It's searchable up by Heliod's Pilgrim. I think that's a huge selling point for Dreadful Apathy as well. All of those things just add up to it being better than Banishing Light. Amen. Number 46, Labyrinth of Scophos is overrated. I think because this is a rare, because it is a land, because it is colorless, feels like, hey, this is going to make my deck 100% of the time because it's colorless. This is a land. So, you know, we always talk about how you want to take lands highly because that means you get to play more of the cards you draft. The problem is, is that when you have the opportunity to activate this card multiple times in a game, it's great. But the problem is that those game states rarely happen. I do not think this is a high pick. Yeah, I think you're taking 
the best uncommons and i think even the best commons over this i like pack one pick one i would take myers grasp final death over labyrinth of scopos i think that list goes on i think apathy i rose's blessing like there's there's a lot of cards i'm taking over the labyrinth yep i agree number 47 play your temples even if they only tap for one of your colors that scry one is worth putting a tap land in your deck number 48 blue green wants to be built as an assertive curve out deck so you want raw stats backed up by cheap tempo plays this is one of the archetypes that we outlined early in the format you want to be curving out with creatures backed up by stern dismissal warbriar blessing things like that ichthyomorphosis if you're getting ahead in the air you don't really want to be playing a like nexus warden shoal kraken incremental value defensive deck i think you can if you've got the bombs for it but generally if we're thinking about a deck based on commons and uncommons the way you're going to win with this deck is if you're curving out and beating down number 49 the five color deck relies on filtering as much as it does fixing so you need you know the traveler's amulets you need the altar of the pantheon but you also need thrills and thirst because what that's going to do for you is get you through all the air in your deck because a lot of times these five color decks you know have significant costs to putting the fixing in your deck to play the bombs of that nature so thrill and thirst really dig you towards those cards and they get you through land clumps they just make it so all of your spells are relevant a recipe for the five color deck is it fixing? Great. Is it a bomb? Great. Is it filtering? Great. If it's not, I guess removal would be on that list as well. If it's not, don't put it in your deck. Yeah, those four categories are the most important for that deck. All right. And finally here, number 50, the power level of commons beyond the top 10-ish, even maybe lower, is very flat. If the most important thing in this format is maximizing your most powerful cards, then the second most important thing is knowing which commons belong in your deck over the others. Uh, and I will say something that I noticed looking through the full spoiler as we were, you know, assembling this list of 50 takes is how many junker commons there are. It feels like a format where we've had more quote unquote unplayable commons and even uncommons in a long time. Well, it's not even that they're unplayable. It's just that compared to the jacked up power level of the best uncommons and rares and even the best commons, they're just embarrassingly bad. Right. They're, they're just, I guess, maybe not unplayable, but not impactful at all because you think about like Satessin skirmisher two mana two one it's like yeah well it's it's a two mana two one or temple thief it's a two mana two two like these are cards that you hope to basically never put in your deck and there's a lot of those right so i think maybe a way to frame it is that there are very few commons that are above the replaceability level line like the replaceability level line is much higher in the commons than it normally is whereas like you know maybe six commons in a color are above replacement level in some colors, it's only two, three, you know. And even commons that we're happy with, I mean, I'm going to talk about Transcendent Envoy again. There are a lot of commons like that where you're like, well, sometimes this makes the cut and sometimes it doesn't. And it's based upon how many of the boxes can I check or situational cards like Nexus Wardens. Like, are you an assertive deck? Don't put Nexus Wardens in your red-green deck because you want to have power and toughness on turn three, not a one-four. Or definitely put you know, Nyxborn Courser in your defensive white deck, but don't put it in your aggressive white deck. Like things like that that you need to think about as the the power of those commons because they're all flat fluctuates so much based on what your deck is doing. Yeah, makes sense to me. Any final parting thoughts for Theros Beyond Death for you? You know, I think this has been a pretty contentious set for us in terms of the community. I think a lot of folks in our Discord, a lot of top limited players in general really like this. Uh, and I think you and I, this was kind of a miss of a format. And I think it's because... 
One of the reasons is because we were behind the curve a lot of the time. And so one of my takeaways for this is that I want to bring to future sets is that I want to try and be ahead of the curve or at least on curve as the set progresses in terms of what the new hotness is or looking at all of the like tiny edges that cards like, you know, Wrap in Flames or Pious Wayfarer can get you if you appropriately evaluate them. Yeah, I think one of my feelings about this format is that once you get over there, there's like a draft hump in this format, right? It's an odd duck in a lot of ways compared to most normal formats or compared to drafting the hard way. Like I think if you come into this format just thinking you can draft the hard way like normal, I think you're in for a rough time. But once you get over the format of like draft 30, draft 40, there's a lot of depth and interesting things, interesting decisions about when to you know, jump ship for that Nadir Kraken or whether or not it's correct to jump ship when you're not blue in pack two or pack three for something like Nadir Kraken or, you know, can you jam a dream trawler in your deck or is it correct not to? There's a lot of deep things that go on in the draft in a different way than most normal drafts go. And I also think the gameplay is really good in the format when the games don't get ruined by a bomb rear. Yeah, there were, I mean, even weeks in, probably even in the last weeks that I played the format, that there were like small mistakes that I made that resulted in me losing the game. And those are those small mistakes, I think, are really interesting. It's what makes the format and the gameplay so deep is that there are these tiny edges that have big impacts on the game. And I will say, you know, despite the feel bads of Cure Best of Sea God or Dream Trawler or things like that, those cards are beatable. And when you do beat them, you feel like a rock star. Yeah, that's true. But I do think uh, on the flip side of that, if you don't have the opportunity to get in the number of draft reps that say you or I do, you can get a really bad taste in your mouth if you're only doing like five or 10 drafts and you're seeing those cards fairly often if you're hitting a patch of variants like that. Yeah. And I do think the format feels good on Arena. And I think the thing that feels best about it on Arena is that you get a powerful deck most of the time. So you're jamming two powerful decks against each other most of the time. Right. Whereas on MTGO, you're playing in leagues. And so if you know your draft pod just doesn't have those cards opened, then you're going to have a less powerful deck on average than your opponent. And I do think that is more apparent in this format in leagues than it has been in other formats. I agree. All right. All good stuff. And that's a great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Come check us out on Twitch and Twitter. Ben's still on spring break, so we'll be seeing more of him at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We'll be seeing more of me at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Uh, you can also check us out on those same usernames on Twitter. You can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited, and you can check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Lords of Limited. Be on the lookout if you're in the Discord for Lords of Limited Friday Night Magic sign up. We'll have a channel dedicated to that and we'll get everybody signed up on the spreadsheet and make sure that if you are twiddling your thumbs at home you get over on itunes leave us a review make sure you put your name in there and we will have a drawing next week with 100 ticks or 100 dollars worth of gems on arena your choice if you are the winner and if you've got any questions shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com thank you as always for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of lords of limited thanks everybody see you later
Here you go, Ben. It's your moment. I, I know. Did you feel the? <laughs> did you feel me go? <laughs> butt clenched. Yeah. I was just clearing my throat. I was prepping myself. I got a little adrenaline. It was uncomfortable. 